Hello, you beautiful listeners. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. Longtime listeners, thank you for coming back. New listeners, my name's Sandy and I live and record on a small sailboat with my family. I've learned to share that with you so you won't wonder the whole time what the sloshing noise is or the quiet creaking of an old boat. Today, it's mostly wind through the rigging. I have quite the case for you today. It takes place in the U.S., more precisely Florida, the land of sun and fun, and a little bit of crazy, and a heck of a lot of interesting. For example, it's illegal to sing while wearing a swimsuit in public, but please don't tell that to the police in Key West. I've also heard that 86% of Florida drivers are oblivious to what a blinker is. That statistic might be incorrect, but my experiences driving in Florida would lead me to believe it as truth. Sorry, Florida. I love you, and you have plenty of other great things going for you. In Florida, there's an ocean reachable within 60 miles of any point of land in the state, and this is what draws so many people there. Sadly, today's murderer, Oba Chandler, used his access to the water as a lure for unsuspecting women. On Sunday morning, June 4, 1949, the bodies of three unidentified women were floating around in Tampa Bay. The first body was found when several people aboard a sailing boat that was crossing under the Sunshine Skyway saw something bobbing in the water. They immediately called the police, who began working to remove the body. As they were doing so, a second body was found floating under a pier in St. Petersburg, which was about two miles north of where the first body was found. Police were retrieving the second body when the third was found floating only 200 yards away. All three bodies were found floating face down. They had been bound and gagged and were nude from the waist down. Then they had been tied to concrete blocks, which were pulled up to the surface as the bodies began to decompose. After a thorough autopsy, the coroner stated that the women had been sexually assaulted, then thrown into the water, alive. They hadn't been blindfolded, so they had been able to see and hear and had struggled to untie themselves until their air ran out. The fact that the women were raped told police they were looking for a sexual predator. Investigators immediately began combing through missing persons cases in an attempt to identify the three women, but were unable to find anything. Days later, a manager from a local hotel calls the police. He states that three women checked into his hotel, but didn't check out. They were Joan Rogers and her two daughters, Michelle and Christy. A detective named Cavill and his team entered the room where they found clothes, toys, and other personal items. Fingerprints from these items were found to match the bodies of the victims. They were a mother and her two daughters. Joan Rogers was married to an Ohio farmer named Hal Rogers. She had taken her girls, Michelle and Christy, to Florida for a vacation, but also to escape some terrible family drama that had been going on back in Ohio. Joan's brother-in-law, John Rogers, had recently been put in jail for raping a woman back in Ohio. It came to light during the investigation that John had also been sexually abusing his niece, Joan's daughter, Michelle. She was only 17 years old at the time of her death. Her uncle John had been raping her for several years. I'll come back to this later. So we have these three women traveling to Florida for some rest, relaxation, and a change of scenery from the recent stresses back home. They check into room 251 at a day's inn in Old Tampa Bay. They ate dinner that evening at the motel restaurant. 
A week later, a maid noticed that the room had not been used. Roger's luggage was still there, and the beds hadn't been slept in. It didn't take police long to find the Oldsmobile they had been driving. It was parked at a boat launch on the causeway near the motel. Detectives searched the room looking for evidence as to what happened to the women, but they found nothing at the hotel. Luckily, the evidence in the car told a bit of the story. Inside the car, on days in stationery, Joan had written the words blue with white and directions to the boat ramp. Investigators guessed that the colors were a description of the boat she was going to meet. Police also found a brochure describing all the things to do in Clearwater Beach. On it were directions to their motel, written in a stranger's hand. The writing was compared to the handwriting of all three women, and of course, it wasn't a match. The handwriting in the brochure was distinctive. There were big black letters with a capital T in the middle of a word, and the letter Y looped into a horizontal hook. Unfortunately, these clues led nowhere at first, but another crime nearby in Madeira Beach suggested that a serial sexual psychopath was living in Tampa Bay. Two weeks before the murders, a man driving a dark-colored SUV invited a Canadian tourist to join him on a sunset cruise. Judy Blair, 24 years old, was taking a vacation in Florida with her friend Barbara. A man they had just met invited the two of them out for a boat ride in Tampa Bay to watch the sunset. Judy took him up on his offer, while Barbara refused. While out on the boat, the man raped Judy, but ultimately let her go. The rape had occurred on May 15, 1989, just over two weeks before the murders of Joe, Michelle, and Christy. The man's boat was blue and white. Whoever raped Judy was still at large. Jim Cappell, along with another detective, traveled to Canada to interview Judy Blair. Judy told them that she and her friend had met the man who introduced himself as Dave Posner, or Posno, she couldn't be sure, in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven on the evening of May 14th. She described him as being in his mid-thirties, white, about 5'10 and 180 pounds, with sandy blonde hair. He owned an aluminum company and lived in Bradenton. At least that's what he told them. The man was friendly and easy to talk to and invited the two women to join him for a boat ride the following afternoon. Judy agreed, but Barbara declined. The boat ride was short but pleasant. Conversation between the two flowed easily. He asked her if she and Barbara would like to join him that evening for a sunset cruise. Once again, Judy agreed to go but Barbara declined. The view from the boat that evening was beautiful, and Judy snapped several photos, some of which the man appeared in. They were relatively far out in the bay by the time the sun had set. That was when the man's behavior towards Judy changed. He became aggressive and began touching her inappropriately, telling her that he wanted to have sex. Judy refused. Terrified, she began screaming and crying. The man told her to shut up, and if she didn't, he would duct tape her mouth closed. He also threatened to kill her if she didn't comply. Pinning her down, he ripped off her top, pulled down her shorts and bikini bottoms, and raped her. When finished, he gave her a thermos of water and demanded that she rinse herself off with it. He then told her to get dressed. He took the film from her camera and threw it overboard. Acting as though things were normal, and he had not just violently raped her, he began to make conversation. Judy was too stunned to speak. 
They were now on their way back to shore. The man threw up over the side of the boat several times. Detective Kappel wondered, was he so overcome with guilt that it caused this physical reaction? Once they were close enough to shore, the man ordered Judy off the boat, telling her that she could swim the rest of the way. Judy could not get away fast enough. She threw herself overboard and swam as fast as she could away from her attacker. Unfortunately, due to rinsing herself off with water from the thermos after the rape and swimming to shore, no forensic evidence from the man remained on Judy's person. The rape kits back then were not nearly as advanced as the kits today. With Judy's help, the Madeira police had a sketch of the man. He was deeply tanned, stocky, and was pushing 40 with thinning blonde hair. Hundreds of tips poured in, but nothing proved to help. Unfortunately, investigators couldn't convince the Tampa police that there was a link to the boat launch murders. A year goes by, and no leads were found in Florida to help solve the three murders, so attention had turned to their family in Ohio. Investigators studied postcards that were sent home looking for clues, but they only found notes from a happy wife and daughters. Joanne's husband, Hal, had begun to worry when the women were late coming home and had made no contact. Five days later, police had called to tell him the terrible news. Looking back, he said he has gaps in his memory because of the shock of losing his wife and daughters. The investigators suspected that perhaps he had hired someone to kill the women. He was seen on his farm in the days before and after the murder, so it was impossible that he could have killed the women himself. However, $7,000 had been recently taken out of their bank account. Hal told police he had pulled the money out of the bank when the women were missing, as he had planned to go look for them. He was able to show them that he had $1,000 in his pocket and $6,000 in an envelope on the dash of his truck, so he was excluded as a suspect. Then the investigators were told about Hal's brother John and the inappropriate sexual relationship he had taken with Michelle. The three years prior to Michelle's death had been painful to the family. There was a predator in their midst who was no stranger. It was a brother and an uncle. John Rogers lived on the family property in a trailer and also worked on the farm. John was described by locals as a bit strange. He would walk around wearing army fatigues and claimed to have gone on several missions with the Secret Service and the CIA. No one knew how dangerous he really was. That is, not until police came to his trailer and arrested him for the rape of his ex-girlfriend. The pair had recently broken up, but she continued to stay in the trailer with John until she found somewhere else to live. She reported that when she returned to the trailer one evening, she was ambushed by a man wearing a mask, who handcuffed her and put blindfolds over her eyes. It wasn't difficult for her to recognize from his voice that it was John. He threatened her with a knife to stop her from crying out. Then he raped her. He videotaped the entire thing according to her report to the police. The police obtained a warrant to search John's trailer. Not only did they find the video the woman referred to, they also found pictures of a teenage girl, nude and blindfolded, and audio tapes of the same girl screaming and pleading with her attacker to be left alone. The girl in the pictures and in the audio was none other than John's niece and Hal's daughter, Michelle. John had been molesting her since she was just 14. When Hal and Joe found out, they were distraught. How could they have missed something so horrible happening right under their noses? John got away with it mainly by taking advantage of the times that Hal and Joe were away on farm business. He routinely threatened Michelle, 
warning her that if she told anyone, he would kill her. The revelations ripped the family apart. If I'd have known, I'd have killed the son of a bitch to start with, Hal would say later. Shockingly, Hal and John's, and John's mother, Irene Rogers, sided with John over her granddaughter. She would tell people around town that Michelle was lying about the whole thing, despite the evidence the police found in John's trailer. Hal was livid and promptly cut his mother out of his life. John denied the whole thing, claiming he had been set up. Of course, no one bought it. He ended up being sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison for the rape of his ex-girlfriend. The charges brought against him in Michelle's case, however, were dropped when she refused to testify. She was determined to live as normal a life as possible, going to school, parties, and spending time with her boyfriend. Not a life filled with lawyers, court dates, and constant tension. Michelle had refused to take the stand in the trial for rape against her uncle, so there was nothing John could have gained by her death. He was also in jail at the time, so he was eliminated as a suspect. People began to worry whether the crime would ever be solved. Three years passed, and nothing seemed to come of the case, so a new team of Tampa detectives began to study it. The investigators studied the knots that were used to tie mother and daughter up. They reviewed the evidence in the case. From this research, they believed that the killer had tied the women up before tossing them overboard, as we said earlier, and that the cinder blocks were the last thing added. Investigators theorized that Michelle, the oldest daughter, was thrown in and was able to get her hands loose. The younger daughter, Christy, was able to turn her hands and cover the knot as if she were trying to untie it as she died. All three women had water in their lungs, proving they had drowned. None of them wore blindfolds. Let me pause to let that sink in. This means that two of the women saw their own daughter's mother or sister or combination of the three being killed and knew that they were next. The fear, anger, and regret that these women must have felt isn't something I want to think about because it honestly makes me feel sick. I hate the man that did this to them. The detective studied the brochure more. And after using a handwriting expert, they agreed, once again, that none of the women wrote the note. The brochure gave up another clue, a palm print, one that likely belonged to the killer. This is where the story gets good. Earlier in the investigation, a local woman named Joanne, this is a different Joanne, not the mother, but another Joanne, Joanne Steffi, thought she recognized the sketch when the Canadian, Judy, had helped the detectives design it. Joanne thought it looked like a man who had been her former neighbor and had abandoned his home in 1989, soon after the triple murder. She remembered that he had owned a blue and white boat and drove a dark-colored SUV. She remembered that he gave her the creeps. He wouldn't look people in the eye, and she said that he scared her. She remembers that she caught him staring at her one night, so she shut the lights off in her house, and she watched him as he stared across the street into the room of a couple younger girls. It concerned her enough that she spoke to a friend about this, but the friend said, you don't know it's him, and you could destroy him and his family's life. So Joanne never went to the police, but she kept the sketch up on her refrigerator. Meanwhile, a profiler from the FBI was brought into the case. The profiler told them that they should be looking for a serial killer, and that based on the evidence, it was believed the killer left blindfolds off the women because he enjoyed seeing the fear in their eyes. The profiler believed that he had killed before and would do it again. A killer doesn't start with three victims. 
The new detectives decided to run a media blitz to try and drum up some more clues. Billboards were blown up with pictures of the handwriting and were put up in the Tampa Bay area. This was the first time police had ever used billboards to draw in more tips. Our true crime superstar, Joanne Steffi, sees the handwriting and still believing that her old neighbor was involved, did some detective work. She dug out a written estimate that her creepy, perverted neighbor had signed. He had been hired to rebuild her porch. She said her knees hit the floor as the Y in his handwriting was a perfect match. She called Tampa police, but never heard back. Joanne Steffi called again and again over several weeks. Luckily, she was very persistent and a badass, and eventually was able to talk with an officer, at which point she gave the name Oba Chandler. Oba, who was 45 at the time, had a long trail of felonies. When investigators saw pictures of Oba, the resemblance to the sketch was obvious. They became very excited. They reached out to Judy, the woman who had been raped, and she was very quickly able to pick Oba Chandler out of the photo array. This allowed police to track him to Daytona Beach, where he was finally handcuffed on September 4th of 1992. Oba was the fourth of five children born to Oba Chandler Sr. He lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. At only 10 years old, Oba Jr. found his father hanging in the basement. At the funeral, it's said that he jumped onto his father's open grave as dirt was being thrown in. I feel for anyone who lost a family member to suicide, including 10-year-old Oba. I don't, however, condone using a terrible past as an excuse to become a terrible person. Chandler grew up taking what he wanted. He began to steal cars and was arrested for possessing counterfeit money. Then his crimes became more serious. He would go on to be arrested and charged with burglary, kidnapping, and armed robbery. It's unclear when exactly Chandler began to display predatory behavior. In his late teens, he was arrested for masturbating while peering into a woman's window. During his early days in Florida, Chandler and an accomplice broke into the home of a couple and robbed them at gunpoint. As well as robbing them, Chandler had his accomplice tie the man up while he took the woman into the bedroom. He forced her to strip down to her underwear. He then tied her up and slowly rubbed the barrel of his revolver across her stomach. During this incident, it became obvious that Chandler experienced sexual pleasure from scaring people. Despite being a sexual deviant and a menace to society, Chandler was never without a woman by his side. Maybe they found his bad boy vibe irresistible. He certainly could lay on the charm when he wanted something. With his blonde curls and chiseled jawline, he was considered handsome in his younger days. Unsurprisingly, Chandler left much to be desired as a boyfriend and a husband. He had an extremely short attention span when it came to women, and was often involved with multiple partners at the same time. While it's not clear exactly how many times he was married, it has been confirmed that he fathered at least eight children by seven different women. There may be more. When Chandler was 16, he began seeing a girl named Martha Lou Glass, who was just 14. They were never married, but together they had two daughters. Chandler left Cincinnati for Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, where he served in the U.S. Marines for just over a year. When he returned to Cincinnati, he continued his relationship with Martha, but began seeing other women at the same time, one of whom would give birth to his son, Jeffrey. In 1969, Chandler left Martha for good and married a woman named Jennifer. She was a Playboy bunny at the Cincinnati Playboy Club. They were together for a few years before Chandler moved to St. Paul, Minnesota and married another woman, 
with whom he fathered another son. After this, the details of Chandler's romantic life are murky. He would have two more children after Skipper was born. But as I said, there could be more. Fast forward to the late 1980s. Chandler is 41 years old and engaged to a woman, but of course, being true to his nature, he's seeing another woman. Her name's Deborah Whiteman. In Chandler's opinion, Deborah is prettier. She's also younger, more naive, and doesn't ask prying questions about his past or what he gets up to when she's not around. In Chandler's perspective, based on over 25 years of relationships, there's nothing worse than a woman who will not mind her own business. Chandler lied to Deborah with ease and didn't feel bad about it. Not that he felt remorse for much of anything he said or did. When Chandler and Deborah met, Deborah knew nothing about his fiancée and was under the impression that Chandler lived with his mother in a mobile home. She knew that Chandler had been married before, but didn't know how many times, and that he had children from previous relationships. Deborah herself had been married twice before. She also knew he had been to prison for dealing drugs. Chandler assured her, though, that this was all in the past, and she accepted it. After the triple murder, Chandler told his daughter Crystal what he had done. She went on to tell Deborah, and the three of them decided to move away from Florida, all the way to California. He had a fast car and wanted a ticket to anywhere but Florida. They likely didn't make it all the way there, as Oba was hurting pretty badly for money. They returned rather quickly to Florida, settling in Daytona Beach, where he had connections. This is where police would find him and take him to court. Chandler, thinking he's smarter than everyone else, determined it was best to represent himself when it was time to go to trial. Police presented their belief that Joanne Rogers got lost in Tampa with her daughters and happened to ask Chandler for directions, or that maybe he had seen their Ohio license plate and struck up a conversation with them since they had the same home state in common. He may have enticed them with the offer of a sunset boat cruise. The women were seen alive at 7 p.m., and investigators believe they were killed before 3 a.m. that same night. Chandler states he met the women and had given them directions, but he said there's no proof that he was out on the water that night. The rebuttal was beautiful. One investigator had phone proof that he showed marine phone tolls that did indeed prove that he was out on the water the entire night of the murder and put him on the water the night of the Madeira Beach rape as well. He continued to deny his involvement, but changed his story, claiming that yes, he was on the water after all, but that his boat had broken down due to a gas leak. He claimed he had called both the Coast Guard and the Florida Marine Patrol. If that wasn't enough, he also flagged down a patrol boat, but they said they were too busy to help him. Chandler says he decided to fix the line with duct tape and return to shore. The Coast Guard and Florida Marine Patrol had no record of a call from Chandler. Also, no patrol boat was in the water at the time Oba claims he made contact with them. At his trial, Chandler's daughter Crystal testified that Chandler told her about the murders and he offered Joanne Rogers and the girls a choice once he had them on board. His exact words were, fuck or swim. Chandler grinned as he declared his innocence from the witness stand, but the jury disagreed and he was condemned to die. He spent 17 years in jail as his appeals were denied. Finally, in the fall of 2011, he was strapped to a gurney and injected with a lethal cocktail. Chandler had a very specific modus operandi, inviting unsuspecting, attractive young female tourists out on his boat. 
This was also in the 80s, when women were far more trusting than they are today. Chandler just seemed like a friendly local who was being nice and offering them a free sunset cruise. Why wouldn't they take him up on his offer? The true number of murders Chandler committed is not known, even to this day. Detectives who are familiar with Chandler suspect he may have killed many more women in Florida in the late 80s and early 90s, but they just don't know. The way in which the Rogers women were killed is strongly suggestive of someone with a practice confidence. He was a killer who knew what he was doing. In February of 2014, three years after his execution, their theory was proved correct. There were more victims of Oba Chandler. This murder was different than that from the Rogers woman and that the victim was not a tourist. She was a pretty young female, however, and Chandler turned on his charm to gain her trust. Ivelisse Berrios Bergeris was only 20 years old when she was murdered on November 20, 1990. She was newly married and living in Coral Springs, Florida with her husband at the time of her death. Ivelisse worked at the Sawgrass Mills Mall in a sporting goods store. She was heading to her car, a 1985 Ford Tempo, after her shift when she realized her tires had been slashed. In all likelihood, she was approached by a, quote, friendly stranger who offered to help. Three hours later, at around 1 a.m., her naked, lifeless body was discovered. There were ligature marks on her wrists and ankles and duct tape stuck in her hair. Cold case detective Dan Cookie of the Coral Springs PD explained that during the investigation into Ivelisse's murder, DNA samples had been collected and processed, but they didn't amount to much. The technology was not as sophisticated as it is now, and there wasn't much of a database of criminals' DNA they could refer to. Back in 1990, rape kits and the DNA collection process were not the same, but it's way more advanced, Cookie said. You can actually take a smaller sample, and through the new technology, they can develop potential profiles and suspect DNA, which they could not in the past. The Broward County Sheriff's Office Crime Lab checked the DNA found on Ivelisse's body again. It was a match to Oba Chandler. As it turned out, he was living just a mile from the Sawgrass Mills Mall at the time. The detectives contacted Ivelisse's family, who live in Puerto Rico, and her husband, who had since moved to Mexico, to inform them that after 23 years, they had finally tracked down who killed their loved one. Florida cold case detectives have been advised that if they are investigating cases which occurred in the late 80s and early 90s, they should look into where Chandler was living at the time. The extent of Chandler's destruction will likely never be fully known. Thank you so much for listening today. A special thanks to Shanna Bad, who has been a longtime supporter of the podcast. She's a gem. Also to new friends of the podcast, Laurel V, Diane S, and Jeannie F. Thanks so much for sharing the podcast with friends and giving me new case suggestions. It's great to see your support on social media. It's so, so appreciated. And I'm sure there are more of you doing it out there, so thank you so much. If you'd like to support me, you can do so by sharing the podcast, giving it a five-star rating and a nice review. That really helps other people find the podcast and be able to give it a listen. Or you can fill my rum cup by supporting the podcast monetarily. There are links in the show description to do so. That's where you will also find my resources and social media links. Thanks again all, and to all of you, I wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you.